Welcome to WMNF 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. You're listening to the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. Well, we have a couple of topics on today's show. Later on, we're going to bring on WMNF's general manager, Randy Zimmerman, so she can introduce a powerful interview she did with a Ukrainian culture scholar about how the war is impacting the ancient art of Ukraine and why it's important to study cultural icons. So I hope you stay tuned for that. First up on the show, we're going to learn about opportunities that some people have right now to enroll in Obamacare during the ACA's special enrollment period. And joining us live by Zoom this morning is Katie Roders-Turner, Executive Director of the Family Healthcare Foundation. Welcome back to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Katie. Sean, thank you so much for having me. We truly appreciate the opportunity. I'm glad you were able to come on today. So tell us, what is the Affordable Care Act special enrollment period that's going on now and who is eligible? Absolutely. So um, the special enrollment periods that are available on the health insurance marketplace, there's some of the more common ones like losing coverage, getting married, having a baby, changes in immigration status. All of these major life changes would allow someone to go look at the health insurance marketplace which is the federal government's one-stop shop to apply for subsidies, compare health insurance plans, and enroll in affordable health care coverage. But in major news, there is a brand new special enrollment period. And this is for individuals and families earning between 100 to 150 percent of the federal poverty level. So, for example, a single individual earning between $1,000 to $1,600 per month could enroll in coverage at any point within the year. If they currently have a plan, they could even change that coverage. And this is a pretty landmark change that allows people more opportunities to enroll in healthcare coverage. I want to remind people that we're speaking with Katie Roders-Turner, Executive Director of the Family Healthcare Foundation here on 88.5 FM. This is the Tuesday Cafe, and we're talking about Obamacare and who's eligible to enroll now. Even if you didn't enroll in the, in the enrollment period back a few months ago, there are some cases that allow you to enroll right now. So, Katie, what kinds of coverage are there available under the Affordable Care Act? So frequently, for many people, they can find free premiums available on the marketplace. Um, There are seven different insurance carriers uh, that are available within Tampa Bay. Um, People are able to go to healthcare.gov, fill out an application. They also have the opportunity to use a window shopping tool to see what the plan prices might look like. And at any point, regardless of what someone needs, there are navigators throughout Tampa Bay at the Family Healthcare Foundation or with our partner organizations that provide free expert assistance looking at any of those plan options. How can people get in touch with a navigator? So they are able to call 813-995-7005 to get connected with the navigator for either phone assistance or to schedule an appointment. They can also go to our website at familyhealthcarefdn.org and they can make an appointment online that way as well. Also, because of COVID-19, a lot of people got coverage under Medicaid in Florida that might not have gotten it otherwise. And so some of that funding is running out. What Remind people what there was available during COVID-19 and how that might be changing. Absolutely. So in March 2020, the federal agency, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, temporarily waived certain Medicaid and children's health insurance program requirements and conditions. And it was an effort to help make sure that people didn't lose their health insurance or health care coverage during a pandemic. So now some states will need to restart that process. 
And people will may get letters in the mail asking them to reapply for Medicaid. As a result, they may lose their Medicaid because they are no longer eligible for it due to changes in income or household size. So the concern is that a large number of people, especially children, may lose Medicaid coverage and be without health care coverage. However, there's a lot of ways we could get in front of this. Um, making sure that people are aware of other options like th- that would create a special enrollment to get into the marketplace, or they could look at Florida Kid Care for health insurance coverage for their kids. In preparation as well, we're really encouraging people to make sure that their contact information is up to date with the Medicaid agency and to be looking for any letters that might be coming, asking them to renew coverage. How can you make sure that your um, your address and so forth is up to date? Where do you, Is there a website that you can go to to check to see what they have on file? Absolutely. So frequently people have what's called a My Access account where they would be able to log in, update con- contact information through that portal. Um, they are also able to call um, the state Medicaid office to verify that information as well. Um, we are able to assist with both of those things if people are having a hard time understanding which way to go, which we can completely understand. Um, but there is a way to verify that through that online portal too. I want to remind people that you're listening to Tuesday Cafe on WMNF. I'm Sean Canan. My guest is Katie Roders-Turner, Executive Director of the Family Health Care Foundation. We're talking about how you can enroll in Obamacare. Even though it's not open enrollment right now, there are there is a special enrollment period. As she was saying earlier, that if you've had any life changes, in most cases you can enroll, but there's also a special uh, enrollment period for people who are eligible right now with 100 to 150% of the federal poverty letter, federal poverty level. It's easy for me to say. (laughs) So Katie, um, Florida is one of the states that has not expanded Medicaid eligibility. So how does that fact impact all of this? Well, so in addition to helping people look for options that they may be eligible for outside of um, people who are on Medicaid, we encourage people to look for their local county programs as well. Thankfully, I am physically right now located in Hillsborough County. We have a phenomenal Hillsborough County healthcare plan, um, which offers really comprehensive healthcare services. So if someone is in what we call the Medicaid gap, Um, That is a program that we would look to help them with an application to get that type of coverage to ensure they're getting free health care. There's other county programs as well in Pinellas and Polk County, too, that we could point them towards. Um, But that Medicaid gap component, the lack of Medicaid expansion, generally means that the state of Florida has a higher uninsured population. Um, And that is something that has been true for many years. And when you say Medicaid gap, you're talking about people who are... um, are really uh, living in poverty in some cases, or at least close to poverty, and yet still are not eligible for Medicaid. Correct. And then in turn, also then not eligible for those federal subsidies too. Um, Frequently though, if people have um, been told that they do not qualify, we're really encouraging everyone to come back and take a second look. Um, Perhaps maybe the income information needs to be entered differently to make it populate correctly. Um, A lot of times when people fill out some of these applications for themselves, it can be overwhelming or they're filling it out and then they're getting a lot of calls from people that they weren't expecting. Um, So we as navigators provide free, confidential, one-on-one assistance to ensure that people are getting the most correct and accurate information as possible and helping to navigate the system because we do understand it's overwhelming. 
Katie Roeders-Turner is Executive Director of the Family Health Care Foundation. And you heard the word navigators in there. So um, maybe can you define that or let people know what these navigators do if, if for example, you call the Family Health Care Foundation at 813-995-7005 to have a navigator help you through the process. What do those people do and, um, and uh, is there a charge for that service? Great question. So the Family Healthcare Foundation is a nonprofit and we've been in Tampa Bay for almost 25 years. And our vision is that every person in Tampa Bay has equitable access to affordable quality healthcare. We have free and expert navigators and partners in four counties across Tampa Bay to help people find affordable healthcare options and then help with the steps needed to enroll in that coverage. So when I say navigator, we are federally funded through a grant that's administered through the University of South Florida's College of Public Health to provide these services for free. We are trained annually. We are registered with the state of Florida. We have to be unbiased and we cannot accept payment under any any any, any instance. Um, and we always have to make sure that we're telling people about every option that they have available to them. And you can, again, get that service by calling 813-995-7005. What happens if instead of phoning, if you decide to go to healthcare.gov, would you be able to get service there as well? Sure thing. So at healthcare.gov, that's the federal government's platform to apply for coverage, uh, um, apply for coverage, apply for the subsidies, compare the plans side by side. Um, there's also a very nice window shopping tool that's available that wouldn't require the full application, but kind of shows an overview of what's available. Um, there is an option to go to uh, find local help, and that will get you to somebody. Um, there are non-navigator entities on there, um, which if that's a good fit for you, then that's great. Um, but for the local navigator programming, we generally try to give out our contact info if you feel that you're in need of that assistance. Again, my guest is Katie Roeders-Turner, Executive Director of the Family Healthcare Foundation. It's 1016 in the morning and you're listening to Tuesday Cafe on WMNF. I'm Sean Canan. Katie, let me ask you about this. Last week, President Biden announced steps to protect and strengthen the Affordable Care Act by proposing a rule to fix what is called the family glitch. And that would save hundreds of thousands of families many dollars a month, maybe some some of them hundreds of dollars a month. So tell us, what is this family glitch and how is it being fixed? So glad you brought this up. This is incredible news. Uh, we were so excited to hear about this. So the family glitch has been a barrier for family members of employees who have access to employer-sponsored insurance. Employer-based healthcare coverage is defined as affordable if it meets that criteria for the plan only for the employee. So if a plan for an employee is free, then that is considered affordable. But it doesn't take into consideration the cost to add a dependent, a spouse, or the whole family, which can then drastically become far more expensive. So that family glitch makes family members ineligible for a tax credit on the marketplace, even though they may need it. And it's estimated that this impacts about 5 million people. By fixing the family glitch, family members of, of workers who have unaffordable family coverage could qualify for premium tax credits to purchase marketplace ACA plans. And that could start as soon as January, 2023. 
And so then in that case, these family members would be able to buy essentially the, the gold plans, the, the bronze plans, silver plans that you hear about in the Affordable Care Act's marketplace and then get health coverage that would be more affordable than joining their family members who is insured through their workplace. Exactly. And it's not even that it's that they would also potentially be eligible for the subsidies to help reduce the cost of that using the income eligibility of the households. So it's pretty exciting and it certainly would open a lot of doors and hopefully makes free up some dollars for families that, you know, that they're using right now to pay for higher insurance premiums. Well, Katie Rogers-Turner, Executive Director of the Family Healthcare Foundation, we've covered a lot in the last 15 minutes. We've talked about the Affordable Care Act special enrollment period and this, this uh, family glitch that's being fixed by the federal government. What else in healthcare news should, we, should our listeners know about right now? So it's a lot. We did cover a lot. You're right. It was a tall order. I think by and large, the biggest thing that we're really trying to promote is that if, if you feel like you, you missed out on your opportunity to enroll in coverage, if you didn't understand it, if you... You felt like you you saw something and it was too, it was unaffordable. Please, please call us 813-995-7005. We would be happy to go through and review all options available to you. Um, we we do it every day, all darn day, and so I think that um, we would be happy to speak with anyone to help get people access to affordable health care. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming back on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe today, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a great opportunity. Well, thanks for coming on. Katie Roters-Turner is Executive Director of the Family Health Care Foundation. To speak with an Affordable Care Act navigator, you can call 813-995-7005 or you can find more information on healthcare.gov. I put that phone number and that website on wmnf.org so you can look there if you missed it. And we'll post a link to the video of this full interview on our website wmnf.org later today. Well, I want you to stay with us for in the next few minutes. We're going to hear an interview that our general manager did with a Ukrainian culture scholar about how the war is impacting the ancient art of Ukraine and why it's important to study cultural icons of the past. That's coming up next. And if you want to comment on anything you've heard today, you can email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. We'll be right back after this short music break. Here's a little bit of... New music from Wet Leg, it's called Supermarket.
Well, that's a brand new song from Wet Leg called Supermarket. You're listening to WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. I'm Sean Canan. This is the Tuesday Cafe. And I want to welcome you back to the Tuesday Cafe on Commercial Free Community Radio, WMNF. Joining me now is our general manager, Randy Zimmerman. She's going to introduce our next interview. And if you have thoughts during this interview, you can email dj at wmnf.org. I will uh, read those comments on the air after the interview is over. We'll also take calls after the interview is over if you call 813-239-9663. So, Randy, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and thanks for the interview you were about to hear. What what do you have to say about what we're going to hear next? Well, Sean, thank you so much for letting me share this interview with you and our listeners. Uh, Today, with the help of technology, I'm privileged not only to reach across space, but also time. As an elementary school child, Alenka Pevney walked into our classroom in the Queens, New York neighborhood of Kew Gardens, her golden braid wrapped around her head like a crown, emphasizing the face and spirit that glowed from within. Now, Dr. Olenka Pevny, Cambridge University professor of Ukrainian culture and art historian, is going to shed light on how the ancient art of Ukraine can help explain political justifications of a contemporary Vladimir Putin. And contextualizing the importance of cultural institutions, I want to mention that this past Sunday, Holocaust museums around the world, from Florida to Vancouver to Johannesburg, took out a page in the New York Times that begins, quote, Museums are bearers of history. By housing artifacts and documents of the past, we ensure that the truth, both noble and horrific, are what humanity has done, remains shared and accessible, end quote. And this morning from Dr. Pevney, I received an email that she said, I'm in Poland. I have decided to take in a 12-year-old Ukrainian refugee. I picked her up from the people who brought her out of Ukraine on March 31st, and we are still waiting for her UK visa, close to two weeks now. We applied for the visa on March 24th. This visa process is ridiculous, totally worn out, but she is so wonderful that it makes it all worthwhile. So, Sean, in our interview today with Dr. Pevney, she'll explain how cultural icons of the past generate news of the day. And we begin our conversation with a bit of how her own personal her story begins with her mother's flight from the Soviets during World War II. So actually, my mother, who is 87 now and with us, she uh, she's actually with me here in Cambridge. She left uh, fleeing from the Soviets uh, during World War II. Uh, And she was in displaced persons camps in Germany. And after the war, her camp, part of the camps went to the Soviets or and part to the Allies. And her camp was uh, under the Allies. And so she and her family came to the U.S. And my father was in a similar position, although he came from eastern Ukraine and my mom came from western Ukraine. So uh, they fell in love in these displaced persons camps in Germany. And then they came to the U.S. and they both ended up in New York and met again and married and had us. And then uh, when Ukraine became independent in 91, my uh, parents immediately bought a flat in Kiev, which we still own, although I don't know if it's standing at the very moment. Um, And they traveled there every summer. And then when my father passed away, uh, my mom stayed with us for a while and she made the decision to move back to Ukraine. Uh, 
So um, she was in Ukraine now when this war um, blew up and she had to once again flee her apartment. So she's at my home with one suitcase having left everything in Ukraine. So she's had a very difficult life. Real survivor there. Tough, tough Mm -hmm. lady. Tell me about uh, your PhD and your area of study right now. I actually did my PhD on a 12th century church standing in Kiev. And again, I don't know if it is standing or not at this moment, uh, but that is my specific area of specialization. And a job opened up at the University of Cambridge in the UK. What attracted me to the position was that it was in the Slavonic department to teach Ukrainian uh, culture and, uh, and medieval Rus culture and got the job. So I'm actually going to go to some of your writing. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. So um, in the, the article that you wrote, Encrypted Narrative of Reconstructed Cossack Baroque Forms, you mm-hmm. write, and I guess the church you're talking about with your dissertation is the St. Sophia Cathedral? A different one. No, different one. So I'm yes. going to ask specifically about the St. Sophia because that's what this article was about, right? Um, it's, Can I just say, I can't believe you read it. I'm so impressed that, and so grateful that you just read it. <laughs> I, I, I read two things, so <laughs> which is not much. But you, you write that it's Ukraine's best-known architectural monument. And in addition to that building being from the 11th century, Tell me what's special about that structure culturally to the Ukrainian people and why should we who live elsewhere think it's an important building? Well, it is one of the UNESCO World Heritage Sites. So um, it is a building that brought Christianity to um, the Rus lands, so the medieval lands of uh, Ukraine. And it's one of the... um, Well, I'd have to say, I'm just checking myself, it is the earliest surviving masonry structure in this part of the world. But the reason why this church is so important is because it lies at the heart of identity in this um, area. So it is with the coming of Christianity that you get writing in um, the lands that are now Ukraine and Russia and Belarus and uh, usually there's ecclesiastical texts at the beginning. But basically, um, I think if you, uh, this is probably the monument that Putin would most want to get his hands on because it also, um, I think the, uh, I know the Russian people also see it as part of its inheritance. And another thing that makes this monument very important to uh, Ukrainian culture is through its survival, in the many centuries of its survival, it changed uh, shape and form. So the way we see it today, it's uh, built in this Kozak Baroque style, which is what the article is about. And the Kozak Baroque style is just the coming of the Baroque from the West and intermixing with local elements uh, and local traditions. So it's a style that's unparalleled in any other part of the world. It's uh, common to Ukraine. And uh, Stalin associated this Kozak Baroque style 
with Ukrainian bourgeois nationalism and began destroying buildings in this style. So it is both a medieval monument of the uh, 11th century, but it also has this Baroque shell, which is unique to Ukrainian culture. Now, tell me just, if you can, just flesh out a little bit more. How, again, does this building and Ukrainian identity relate to one another? So as you begin to have the development of identity in the Middle Ages, right, you begin to associate uh, the identity with certain texts. So we know the first library was associated with this building. We know that religion becomes important as an identity element of uh, the Ukrainian people. So, and this is also the princely heart of uh, Kiev. So you have the ruling dynasty that uh, is centered in Kiev and around this monument. So the um, head of the church in all of the lands that eventually became Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine was centered in this church, the Metropolitan of Kiev. So it became the ecclesiastical Orthodox center, and that was part of the identity. As centuries moved on, and uh, this monument was also part of the revival of Kiev in the early 17th century, so, and in this Cossack Baroque style. So it was continuously, Kiev has been the capital of Ukrainian lands since the 11th century. So if, wow. I, I don't know, since we're both New Yorkers, we don't have the same association with Washington, D.C., I think, right. because for me, the U.S. is New York. <laughs> Um, but you might feel differently now that you're in Florida. But for Ukrainians, this is the city that is at the core of their identity and vision of their nation. I, is that it, yes, and I certainly think of myself as a New Yorker who is who lives in Florida and considers it home. So, but no matter where I go, I take myself with me. Right. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> As a reminder to our listeners, I'm Randy Zimmerman, General Manager at WMNF in Tampa, speaking with Dr. Olenka Pevny, who's at the University of Cambridge, and her specialty is in Ukrainian studies and medieval and early modern Slavonic studies as well. In that same paper, you also mentioned two other medieval structures that were recreated after Ukrainian independence in 1991. Can you tell me more about those structures and their significance? Yes. So there, the two structures I mention are the Cathedral of St. Michael's of the Golden Domes and the Dormition Cathedral of the Monastery of the Caves. So both of these structures were also the structures that were rebuilt in this Kozak Baroque style. So um, in the Soviet Union, in order to create a community of peoples that are together, the East Slavic nations. So in order to say that the Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are one people, they developed this notion that there was this great Rus state in the Middle Ages that united all the people, spoke one language, uh, had the same culture. All of that is not true, just, uh, but, and that this state, um, then, you know, the different lands separated and Ukrainian lands fell under uh, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania or Poland. And only the Russian state 
manage to maintain the true identity. And therefore, the Russian people should be the older brothers to the Belarusians and Ukrainians. Um, as Again, as we spoke right before this interview, you mentioned your brother, I mentioned my sister, and I think whoever is listening to us can agree that brothers and siblings and sisters don't always get along and no one wants to be someone's younger brother for very long. Right. So, so basically um, they had different developments and part of the Ukrainian development was this Baroque style and a closer contact with Western Europe that influenced uh, developments in Ukrainian lands and Belarusian lands. And uh, so during the Soviet period, the emphasis was on rebuilding everything to its primary medieval state mm -hmm. of a unified identity. Okay. And anything that separated the Russian people from the Ukrainian people, from the Belarusian people, or distinguished these peoples, they tried to do away with. And it is that Baroque style that is particular or specific to Ukraine and um, that totalitarian rulers had a difficult time allowing these monuments to stand. This kind of leads perfectly to my next question, where you, you weave this lovely tale of how history and politics are part and parcel of the cultural landscape of Ukraine. So how would you describe the artistic or architectural influences that are unfolding now? So I think partially when you asked me about the rebuilding of these monuments, I think one of the reasons why these monuments were uh, rebuilt was because they were rebuilt to this period of the, I have to get my centuries right, of the um, mid 17th and 18th century in Ukraine. During that period, there was a state that developed on Ukrainian lands. It was called the Hetman state. So it was the state of the Kozak, what is called the Zaporizhian Kozak army, right? The, but the essence is that this state, the Hetman state of the Kozaks, is seen as a proto uh, national state for Ukraine, and it was frequently referred to as Ukraine and uh, as well. You mentioned that some some of the leaders, some of the like Tsars, had particular uh, artwork. So to some extent, the artwork went in the direction that they favored more so than um, one particular uh, pathway. So uh, right, like Nicholas the First had a present had a preference for the Byzantine and the Rus past. Um, and might this play into the contemporary narrative that's going on now in Ukraine? Oh, of course. But this is exactly what Putin is doing. He's reviving this imperialist narrative that is trying to see all of Ukraine in this medieval light as one single state. And uh, the reason why Ukrainians rebuild some of these churches is because they reflect this independent, autonomous hegemonate that existed on Ukrainian lands. So uh, politics is definitely in play uh, as to how monuments are restored um, and recreated. And Putin definitely is following the Russian imperial narrative and his vision of what Eastern Europe should look like. I know that you, as an art historian, just believe in the power of art and how much that narrative becomes pervasive in culture and therefore in our thinking and our hegemony. So 
how effective is it really? How effective is that that imagery that he's putting out in uh, I Russia? Think it is extremely effective. Uh, if you, uh, it's too bad that you're studying philosophy, but if you were studying well, Russian like, history yeah. or Slavic history, uh, you would see that all, most, I shouldn't say all, Western institutions, all of our universities uh, follow Putin's narrative. They, uh, because, because we think that, um, you know, things will be too complicated if we start mentioning the Belarusians and the Ukrainians, all our kids will just be very confused and they won't be able to understand this. So let's just keep it simple and call all of Eastern Europe, Russia and uh, the entire Soviet Union. Uh, so what if it had 15 republics? Let's just call it all Russia it will serve our purposes. It will be simple, easy to understand. So it's not even, so that narrative has been continued in Western academia. And I find myself, even here at the University of Cambridge, where we actually have a Ukrainian studies program, we still, in the introductory class, emphasize this notion of Eastern Europe as Russia. Not me, of course, but, you know. Right. <laughs> Thankfully. But, but, but that is a real issue. It would be, I'm sure we do it to other parts of the world as well. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's not, well, Africa, most people think exactly. of as a country instead of a continent with, exactly. you know, dozens of countries. Exactly. So it's the same story. So I think then when we're faced with a conflict, um, like today, a lot of uh, us don't really understand what is happening because in our mind, we all, we saw it as, you know, one collective area and never bothered to learn about the various others that occupied uh, this part of Eastern Europe. And I think we do that. We do that with Asia. We do that with Africa, as you just mentioned. So, you know, I think Ukraine is no exception in this I have uh, some more quotes for you. You write, the article positions Kiev as an interconnected intellectual cultural loci in an ecumenical network where parameters of time and space and the mobility and mixing of ideas and practices generate difference out of similarities, but also engendered expansive commonalities that extend beyond politics. Wow. So I know that's like good stuff. <laughs> wow. So clearly the churches have more than four walls. What are they telling us that we need to uh, understand? So in this particular church, um, what I wanted to say is that uh, the, the images that are actually in there, they're not images of um, these local saints that we just talked about, but they're actually images of saints that are, for example, Cyril of Alexandria is a 5th century Egyptian saint. Wow. And he is being uh, honored and depicted in 12th century Kiev. Do you see? So uh, basically what I was trying to talk about is these networks of communication uh, that we don't really even pay attention to because we're always so focused on proving that something is Ukrainian or something is Russian. And, but... In fact, 
um, this differentiation among people is much more subtle and it has both differences and commonalities. So yes, this Egyptian saint is being venerated in Kiev and he's at the same time being venerated in Constantinople. So this creates this sort of communicative network among these three different areas of the world, right? Because this saint is important in all three areas at the same time. This is in the 12th century. And the reason he's important in the 12th century is because he wrote something that is relevant to arguments that they're having in the church in the 12th century. But yet, in every one of these places, he's represented slightly differently based on the needs of local communities, right? So, um, you know, someone in Egypt might stress his role in combating local paganism or something of that sort. Whereas in Kiev, they will stress his role as a miracle worker and able to heal people. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's a common subject that unites everyone, but also creates differences among or expresses differences among everyone. Just as a reminder again, I'm Randy Zimmerman, and I'm interviewing Dr. Olenka Pevney, who's at the University of Cambridge. She's an art historian and a professor of Ukrainian and early modern Slavonic studies. Now, what do you know about the preservation of these sites with what's going on now with the bombings and attacks? I am very, very worried. Very worried. Um, Because uh, I think we've seen Putin's um, methods in Syria, you know, uh, in Chechnya, in Georgia. And uh, I think one of the things he does is he surrounds cities and levels cities with no... um, uh, no regard for human life or historical value. Uh, So right now in Ukraine, I don't know if you read the news today, but I had just a few minutes before we went on air and uh, he completely obliterated a maternity board, Mm. maternity hospital in the Southern city of Mariupol, where uh, we think there are now children buried under this rubble and they're building a mass grave because there are just too many um, dead. And this is right in the center of the city. All of the churches that we've talked about today are right in the center of Kiev. So um, if the Ukrainians continue putting up a resistance, and I hope they do, and I hope they do win, uh, that means that the center of Kiev will be shelled and bombed, and um, that doesn't bode well for these monuments. Right before I moved back up north in 2005, I worked here at the station, and I, I worked in news for seven and a half years. And um, it's really, really hard to hear how many people are not nice to each other around the world all day long. It's just... Yeah. Horrible. And you've been there. You've been to these places and clearly you have an intellectual curiosity about them, but you also clearly have a strong affection for them. Mm -hmm. And you know what else I would say is 
unlike, and I've been making this argument with the Ukrainians for years now, do you know how people um, are possessive? In scholarship, you should know this, you know, like yes. uh, you can't rep- reproduce that, you can't reproduce this, you know, um, there's copyright, all of this. And in Ukraine, uh, a lot of these monuments, partially because Ukraine had been part of the Soviet uh, Union, aren't documented. Do you know, so what do you it's mean not, they're not documented? The monuments aren't documented. What does that they're mean? They're not photographed on the oh, interior. Wow. Do you know, that we don't even have a full coverage of, for example, all of the imagery on the interior of these churches that I'm t- uh, telling you about. Because you have to think about the fact that under the Soviet Union, all religion was banned, right? So a lot of these buildings were used as storage facilities. So the documentation of these monuments has only begun. And uh, partially interesting because you you talk about in your papers also about the mosaics and the frescoes that you found and how they're also not documented, not in ancient times either. Yeah, so... uh, There was some documentation in the 19th century of these monuments, but, you know, uh, part of the issue is that where Ukraine wasn't an independent state, so some of the monuments that are important for Ukrainian culture didn't receive priority in the Soviet Union in terms of monuments uh, that are part of Russian culture. Um, You know, the economy didn't allow or there wasn't enough money and enough equipment and enough technology uh, to document these monuments. So it's only under independence in, so the past 30 years. Since 1991, right? Yeah, so that they've been, there's an interest in these local monuments and that uh, people are learning new technologies and trying to put things out there. So we don't even have a full record of, um, many of these monuments. Sounds like a great grant opportunity. Doesn't it? Would you like to go in on this with me? A little bit. (laughs) A little bit. So I think uh, one of the things that I'm hopeful for is that this war will end and that Ukraine will persevere. And then I think there will be a lot of rebuilding to do. And Perhaps we could rebuild the country in, I don't know, a better somehow way. I mean, I I know this sounds ridiculous, but that is the sort of hope that I am trying to carry during this time. Good for you. Those thoughts need to be ever present in all of our minds. I know you said you were going to try and put together some organizations that our listeners can reach out to. So there is United Help Ukraine is one sunflower of peace, save the children. There's one that's called Razum for Ukraine, which is just collect together for Ukraine, voices of children. Do you feel like I covered your areas of expertise and things that you would want me to know about Ukraine and the Ukrainian people and what's going on there that is maybe a little different than what other people have heard? Yes, I think that you've taken an entirely different approach these are real people that have real culture. And, you know, it's not just about Putin and who he's slaughtering right now, but these are people who had a beautiful life and um, none of them really want to leave their homeland. And there's so much 
in their homeland that is beautiful and is worth saving. And I think people always focus on this grim picture rather than the wealth that is there. Ah. I was doing the news when we invaded Iraq. And we also talked about how Baghdad was the Paris of the Middle East. And that is actually a comment that I get all the time, Randy, that like, why should we help Ukraine if we didn't help Syria? And, you know, if we bombed Iraq and um, and I don't have an answer for that. Um, there are a lot of wrongs, but doing another or have another wrong isn't going to make the past right. This is, you know? this is my, my comment is like, it's 2022. Let's put a stake in the ground and say enough is enough. Doesn't matter where where we start to say enough is enough. Let's do it now. It happens to be Ukraine. But we do these evil things to each other all over the world every day, and enough is enough. Uh, I, I've always wanted to see Aleppo, for example. Do you know, it's not... Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have... The Ukrainian people aren't any better or worse... Than anyone else. So no, but it's your home and your people. So you have an attachment to them yeah. in a way that you don't to anybody else, and that's one hundred percent understandable. But you know what? This is you're going to cut this out. But right now, as I'm talking to you, I really miss Kew Gardens. Oh, I just miss you know being innocent and I don't know, just. Miss Kew Gardens. I wish we could go back every once in a while for a day or two. I'm Randy Zimmerman, General Manager at WMNF in Tampa. Thank you so much for listening to this interview with my childhood friend, Dr. Olenka Pevney. She's at the University of Cambridge, and her specialty is art history, especially Ukrainian studies, as well as medieval and early modern Slavonic studies. It was my great pleasure and privilege to have the opportunity to speak with her and to let you know more about what's going on in Ukraine from a different perspective regarding the cultural history and why we should all be caring about what goes on in that portion of the world. Well, thank you so much to Randy Zimmerman for her interview of Dr. Olenka Pevney. If you have any thoughts about this, give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can also email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. And uh, have a, have some emails to read, but I first I'm going to go to what I think, I think is going to be a very controversial phone call. So let's hear what Roberto has to say. Hi, Roberto. What's on your mind? Hey, Robert. How are you? Uh, thank you for uh, taking my call. Um, I think that uh, for the U.S. and the Europeans to continue to en- en- enable uh, the conflict to go on endlessly is a horrible thing. War is a crime, no matter who uh, wages the war is a crime. And so... Uh, you're correct in pointing out the crimes the United States has carried out on its own, on the name of democracy, some stupidity like that. This war could have been averted, and it was made in the USA by Joe Biden. I don't know what the dark interest Joe Biden had in Ukraine, but the truth is that if uh, it's, it's difficult to live next to great powers like Russia, it's difficult to live 
next to great powers like the United States. Just remember that one-third of the United States used to be Mexico. And so uh, at this point in time in history, I was very angry because all they had to do is make Ukraine a neutral state that was part of the European Union, and this would have not taken place. Because Absolutely because of not. Ukraine's possible um, ha uh, desiring to become part of NATO, I think that's what you're getting at, right? Or at least becoming that an ally. Clear. That was all Joe Biden. That hey. was all Joe Biden and, and Stoltenberg. Because NATO is is a war machine. It's, it's, it's not different from Russia, you know. They are equally murderous in their intentions and actions. And so, um, you know, to, to point paint this like one side is good and the other one is bad is absolutely ridiculous. Both sides are bad, you know? Well, let me ask you this, Roberto. Hey, you know, I'm, I have to say that I, you know, that I think that a lot of what you're saying makes a lot of sense. But one of the things you said earlier on um, doesn't kind of make sense to me. And I want to see what our other, what other people th say about this. You said that, you know, it, that it, right, right now, Europe and, and Ukraine could stop the war. But Honestly, besides just rolling over and accepting um, uh, occupation of Russia, how how could right now? I know I know what you're saying about no, the lead up. Right now, what could they do? No, right now it's a disaster. I don't know how you're, you're going to extricate out of this at all. I'm saying at the origin, at the onset of the conflict, and you have to give credit to the Russians that for two months they talk with everybody. We want this country to be neutral and not to join NATO for obvious reasons. You know what I mean? Russia has been invaded repeatedly. Roberto, I'm going to move on because a lot of people um, want to weigh in on this. But I, you know, I... I don't think that I can give credit to Russia because it's possible they were saying for two months that, you know, Ukraine should back off its desire to become part of NATO. That's possible. But no one forced Russia to invade. So I um, appreciate the call. Roberto, thanks for kicking things off. If you'd like to weigh in, if you agree or disagree, 813-239-9663. I have some emails to read through, but I do want to let you get in on the phones if you want in the last three or four minutes of the, of the show. Again, you're listening to Tuesday Cafe on WMNF Tampa. Rob writes in the, uh, that Randy's introduction was great, he says. So thank you for writing in early during the interview to tell us about that, that Randy's introduction was great. And oh, I haven't pointed this out, but I should say that this was this interview was from a few weeks ago because you heard Olenka Pevney mentioned the maternity hospital that was bombed in Mariupol. So that's that was the timestamp for when this occurred. So it was about two or three weeks ago. You may remember that. Of course, you remember that uh, huge part of this war. And again, that was Olenka Pevney, a Cambridge University scholar in Ukrainian cultural studies and an art historian talking to WMNF's Randy Zimmerman, general manager. So what do you think? Uh, David Bryant writes in, uh, hello to Randy Z. And he says, I had an idea for a protest-related art installation. How about a bust of Putin made out of poop and call it Putin? That's pretty much how I feel about him. So there's David taking it uh, to the... Yeah, taking it there. So um, DeMarco says, doesn't it seem as if Putin intended genocide right from the beginning? That's that's what uh, DeMarco thinks. So 813-239-9663, uh, if you'd like to weigh in on anything that you heard during the interview or anything you agree with or disagree with on what you heard of the comments so far. Also, Tina in Brooksville writes, thank you for this program. Wow, Sparkling Heart WMNF rocks. Randy rocks, and she says she's also worried about Ukraine and much more globally. 
And Tina writes, huge respect. So thank you for that, Tina, for the email. And also Jeff writes in, I've heard Putin speak, he says. He does not sound unintelligent, but doing this action, he has angered so many in the international community. In the modern world, there is an interdependence of nations for resources and other economic factors, so this can't be good for Russia. Going into World War III would be a disaster for everyone. Is it possible that Putin could be that unwise, or is there some other kind of reasonable outcome that he's trying to achieve? So that's the question that Jeff is asking out there in cyberspace. So if you have something you'd like to write in, um, you know, I might have time for one more call. Let's hear what Kenneth in, in Northport says. Um, I'll come to Kenneth as soon as I'm able to. In the meantime, I will read Karen's uh, question. What did she say she missed at the end? Oh, um, Karen, she was saying that she missed the childhood park in New York City that she and uh, the neighborhood that she and Randy both grew up in and went to elementary school in. That's what she said at the very end. And by the way, if you missed any of this interview, you can hear it on our website, WMNF.org. I'll have the audio up in about uh, 45 minutes from now. So let's see if we can get Kenneth on unable to just yet. Sorry about that. Let me read, um, speaking of the New York City, as we uh, end the program here. Well, that came a little bit faster than I wanted to. At least five people were shot at a subway station in Brooklyn today. Fire personnel are responding to reports of smoke this morning at the 36th Street Station in Sunset Park. Found multiple people shot in unexploded devices. The fire department said 13 people were injured, but no details were provided. A photo from the scene showed people tending to bloodied passengers lying on the floor of the station. According to multiple law enforcement sources briefed on the investigation, preliminary information indicated a suspect was wearing a construction vest and a gas mask. Further details were not immediately available. Trains were delayed. So stay tuned for NPR News headlines coming up in a minute to get the latest on the Brooklyn subway shooting. I want to thank John Dunn for answering phones this morning. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe with Sean Canan. This show is every Tuesday morning at 10. If you like the programming on 88.5 FM, please consider donating at WMNF.org. In this time slot tomorrow, Shelly will host Midpoint. Next up, we have Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. And their guest in the studio at WMNF is Tampa's member of Congress, Kathy Castor, who will talk about the latest alarming report about the climate emergency. That's coming up after NBR Headlines. You are listening to WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, and Lakeland. Thanks so much for listening and supporting commercial free radio in Tampa Bay. This is Dolly Parton, and you're listening to 88.5 FM WMNF.